Welcome to the Send 938 podcast, a ministry of Baptist Missions designed to equip, encourage, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American Ministries with Baptist Missions. Joining me in the studio today for the first time for what will be a monthly installment of a moment in BMM history is President Emeritus Dr. Gary Anderson, also happens to be my dad. Welcome, Dad. Well, it's nice to be here, Stephen. And as a relic within Baptist Missions, I think this uh, first session ought to touch on the history of the mission. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, a relic who uh, spent 26 years in the president's office. And as the longest serving president, you have become a bit of a de facto repository for the history of the mission. Well, I, I used to say to my administrative team, I dread the thought that we ever become a dinosaur. But the truth is, I if there is one in Baptist Missions, I probably <laughs> well, that may be arguable. the The purpose of of these uh, special monthly episodes here in a moment in BMM history is to inspire and encourage uh, young people, especially with the story of what God has done through faithful missionaries. Missionary biographies have been a point of of inspiration for many a missionary who eventually enters the harvest field. These stories that uh, you intend to tell regarding our mission history and our mission family, I think will prove to be no less inspiring um, and used of God to encourage. So what have you brought for us today? Fact is, as I think of the history of the mission, 102 years now, I'm reminded of Psalm 103. It's one of my favorite Psalms. It talks about uh, God's provision for his children. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And it begins with a list of benefits that uh, at the very top of the list is the forgiveness of sin. So there's an argument from the greater to the lesser as you move through that list. A God who cared enough for us to provide for forgiveness of our sins by virtue of the death of his own son on our behalf. He forgives our sins. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. The list is long, and, and the psalmist, it uses the term who repeatedly, but it there are no interrogatives in the psalm, not a single question mark anywhere in the psalm. They're, they're really uh, confident affirmations. He is the one who forgives our sins, heals our diseases, redeems our lives. Consequently, the, the psalm talks about the provision of a heavenly father. In fact, you get down to the, about the middle of the psalm, refers to God pitying those who fear him like a father pities his children. That's that's more than just an emotional sense of sympathy. It's uh, it's really a, an irrepressible urge that wells up in the breast of a father when he sees his child in need. There's no way he can tamp that down. It's it's uh, in fact you would be wise not to get in the way of a father who is rushing to the aid of a child who is in need. And that's that's the portrayal of God as our heavenly Father. I I think the history of Baptist missions. Um, portrays that type of care. Not that, you know, I, I think as a dad, I probably feel like most dads, it would have been wonderful if as a dad rearing our children, if I could have somehow stood between them and hard times. Most of what I did during those hard times in the lives of my children was to support, encourage, and to contribute whatever I could to their welfare. But I couldn't protect them from hard times. It's not that God couldn't. He could, but he doesn't take all the hard times out of our lives. He simply promises to be a resource available to us. 
I think of the founder of Baptist Missions, William Clarence Haas. For years, I called him Dr. Haas. Nancy <laughs> yeah. Freund, who is, uh, she has become a, a very reliable source of, of uh, history here at the mission. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Nancy told me at one point, uh, are you aware that, that he either earned or, or was given a doctorate? I said, no. She said, I don't think there's any evidence. I, I said, well, I've bequeathed it upon him unilaterally. <laughs> It's hard for me. If he to, didn't have one he ought to have, right? Well, that's exactly right. If if there was ever a person who deserved one, it would have been William Haas, the founder of Baptist Missions. He was a phenomenal figure. He was he was brilliant as a child. He showed great propensity for scholarship. He finished his formal training by the time he was sixteen. He was certified to teach, and he he served as an educator from age 16 to 21. At age 21, he was ordained to the ministry, pastored in Michigan and two churches in Ohio. It was in 1908 that he surrendered for missions. That happened to be the same year that his first wife died of tuberculosis. They'd had two little girls. Both of them died in infancy. In 1908, he concluded that as a childless widower, uh, he'd been given a, an opportunity to go to Africa, a hard place. It, it wasn't unreasonable for him to consider the fact that as a man who could go alone, perhaps it would be better than taking a family to a place where in the late 1800s, uh, missiologists referred to the movement of missionaries out of the West into onto the continent of Africa as, as a veritable death march. Only one out of 20 lived through one term. So four to five years was life expectancy for a missionary in Africa in those days. And so uh, he attempted to go. In fact, uh, he built a team. He had five recruits that were willing to go. It was 1908. Deleterious effects of liberal theology was realized in, in really painful ways within the missions effort of that day. Missions was in the process of being almost completely abandoned. And so he found five recruits, but they could find no support. And the support that he initially had was lost when his team lost their support. He had no team. Those who had indicated they would support him withdrew their support. He was unable to go. Actually left Ohio, went back to his home area in Michigan, about a year and a half after Alta, his first wife, died of tuberculosis, he married a childhood friend, Genevieve, and they had a son, Will, who traveled with them when they went to Africa for the first time in 1912. So in 1908, he had surrendered. It took him four years to get there. Soon after he and Genevieve married, they aligned with a an interdenominational mission agency. They told him if he wanted to be a Baptist, it was okay with them. He learned in in his experience in the field that it was a a lonely assignment because there weren't many others, perhaps no others, who believed as he did. So there was was a lack of doctrinal uh, camaraderie support. And so uh, about a year and a half after Alta's death, he married Genevieve. They together joined, almost immediately joined an international mission agency. It took them three years, however, to get to the field. So it was 1912. Served for two years with that group. He had a heart for inland Africa, specifically the Zandi tribe. 
felt he'd been called by God to minister there. And the organization that he went to Africa with had told him that they would help him achieve that. But once he got to the field, they had come to realize what a very valuable asset he was. He had a photographic memory, had virtually all the New Testament, most of the Old Testament committed to memory. He was a natural linguist, something that every missionary would aspire to, but uh, he had the God-given gift of of uh, being able to recognize and acquire multiple languages. He, uh, he had a passion for ministry that was quite superior as well, but the fact is that the organization that took him to Africa decided he was too valuable an asset to allow him to go inland. They wanted him to remain on the coast where population was heavier, access was easier, resources were more available. They felt that if he went inland, they would lose him in just a matter of a few years. It's apparent that they thought other missionaries were more expendable than he was. It was not an unreasonable conclusion. But when he realized they weren't going to help him get to the heart of Africa, he severed his ties. As far as we know, it was an amicable severance, but he severed his ties. And he and, and Genevieve headed inland 250 miles on foot. They finally got to a place where they could make progress by dugout canoe, the canoe capsized. They, they lost virtually everything they brought in terms of resources and supplies, but they pressed on. And so from 1914 to sometime in 1917, probably early in the year 1917, they, they served within the very heart of Africa in a territory that eventually would, would return to with other recruits what has become the Central African Republic, that would be the southern portion of French Equatorial Africa, the northern portion being uh, Chad, which in those days was the district of Chad within French Equatorial Africa. Came home from there in 1917. Uh, Genevieve and Will were so ill that they weren't able to immediately return with him. He did eventually return in 1917, World War I, a very, very difficult time. He made his way back to Africa. I believe I'd, I'd have to go back and check the history myself, but I believe he may have made one trip home during the next three years. But in 1920, he realized that while God was giving him a lot of fruit for his work, he and Genevieve in their first two and a half years of service within the center of the continent had touched thousands of lives described as hungering for the gospel. Same thing would have been true in his service when he was there alone. He continued to explore opportunities, uncover those prospects that were brightest in terms of, of getting the gospel where it had never reached before. Came home in 1920 convinced that if he were to die, his work would die with him. And so he came home to build a team. The concept was to put together a team of missionaries with a support base that would be sustainable. It resulted in the first sustainable missionary endeavor into the very heart of Africa, known in those days as a the General Council of Cooperating Baptist Missions of North America Incorporated. We've often joked about <laughs> the name being so long that you needed a three-by-five card for a business, business card. card. In those days, yeah. <laughs> but it was a description of the alliance that was struck at First Baptist Elyria, Ohio, which has been our family's home church now for 35 yeah. years. Yeah. But it was in 1920 when the church was still in the Northern Baptist Convention, didn't leave the convention until 1929, but it hosted a council of churches attended by pastors and representatives from five states, and they considered for a period of a couple of days what could be done in order to sustain a work like uh, William Haas's work. He had 
garnered again another five recruits. By the end of those meetings, that church council, they determined that they would formally organize, they would they would operate as the base of operation. Haas and his five recruits would go on to Africa, which they did within a couple of weeks. But it was a, quite phenomenal because he determined early on that the base from which his work would grow would be independent Baptist churches, of which there might have been as few as 25 in the day in which he determined that. He moved from Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, some into West Virginia. He moved just in that in that northeast quadrant, among churches that uh, some in in those early days would have referred to them having their toes pointed in the right direction. They were on their way out of the conventions, but they were not yet separate from the conventions. But he was absolutely convinced that the future of missions, as he had been called to conduct missions, was with independent Baptist churches. Phenomenal, really. And in 2002, from 2002 to 2004, we undertook the first mission-wide strategic planning initiative. I said to that group when we first convened, uh, this is the first time that, that anything of this scale has been undertaken in the mission, but it's certainly not the first strategic planning that was ever done. That, that distinction would belong to Haas, who he assessed the need, he measured the obstacles, he developed a plan, a timeline. He garnered resources, governors, uh, funding, missionary recruits. He did all of that in a day when strategic planning was not yet a term that was in vogue. Right. But he did exactly what we did from 2002 to 2004. And he did it in a way which has been very sustainable. So for 102 years now, his vision that that initial strategy has been by the successive leaders of the organization been revisited, revised, adapted, never leaving its original purpose, but always suiting it strategically to the day in which those leaders were granted the privilege of guiding the mission. I thought I'd, I'd tell you a little bit about some of those leaders that uh, I've had the privilege of knowing, if, if yeah. like, that'd be good for this session. Yeah. Nahaz only lived four years after starting the mission. 19- he never served as the president of the organization. No, he was, his title was field director. Right. And he managed the overseas effort while individuals initially, E.S. Carmen, who was a layman, was the American director. They'd not yet... Ad- incorporated a a reference to president. And in the early days, the president of the mission was typically what we would refer to today as the chairman of the governing council. And consequently, most of them were pastors. And my familiarity with those leaders goes all the way back to the second, the first pastor who led the mission as president, Moved the mission through a, a time of considerable turmoil. He gave up the presidency in nineteen late 1944 and early 1945, 1945 being the year that the Second World War ended. In 1945, Pastor Robert McCarthy, who was pastoring 33rd Street Baptist Church in Indianapolis, and who had been responsible for inspiring missions in a phenomenal way out of his congregation because of a proximity to medical training available at the University of, of Indiana there in Indianapolis. 
both doctors and nurses in significant numbers moved into missions. Five significant medical missionaries and their spouses came from that congregation to Baptist missions, including two men that eventually became our medical directors, which meant that they oversaw all of our medical ministries around the world. Dr. John Rao was the first one from that group of five, and then Dr. Quentin Knoyer. Of course, I had the opportunity of knowing both of those men. Dr. Knoyer was the first guy to ever put stitches in my forehead. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you were the first guy to pull stitches out of my yeah, forehead. That's, that's correct. <laughs> he was he was our family physician, and yeah. consequently, because you and your siblings were young when we moved to this post, uh, Dr. Knoyer became pediatrician for our family. So, yeah, yeah, not just injuries, but every significant illness that required medical attention, Dr. Knoyer attended to our family. A wonderful, wonderful colleague. One of, the, one of the most godly men I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Tremendous mind, but a passion. He used to say, I, I've practiced medicine. I was training to be a doctor when, when the Lord burned my heart for missions. I've often wished that he would allow me to serve either as a pastor. He he served as missionary in India for 25 years, and right. then he served 27 years here. But he had he had a burden for uh, communicating the word of God that he felt God never granted him the privilege of devoting himself to entirely. So he practiced medicine all of his career. But I can tell you that uh, a concern for the spiritual life of the mission was every bit as important to him as his concern for the physical welfare of the mission. So going all the way back to Bob McCarthy, who really, he only served for a year, 1945, but it was a very significant year because it was a year when the mission might have actually gone out of existence had someone like Pastor McCarthy not stepped up to offer leadership. But in that year, 200 new missionaries were released to their fields of service. There had been a backlog because of the Second World War, inability to travel, uh, lack of access to parts of the world that were considered dangerous. And so there was a backlog of missionaries that had support and ready to go but couldn't go. And so in 1945, 200 new missionaries went. Wow. You move then to 1950 to 1955, 300 new missionaries were matriculated into Baptist missions very much the result of people being made aware of the world at large. Their yeah, post-war That's right. Second World War had given them awareness, not only that the world was accessible, but also that the, the spiritual needs of the world were phenomenal. And many considered the war itself the result of faulty theology and lack of spiritual influence in places of the world, which might have been spared that trauma had there been more done for the cause of Christ. And so there many, many who had been overseas for military service ended up joining the mission and going back right. to places beyond the, the borders of, of the United States for the well, purpose there, of serving Christ. There's not much that can accomplish a, a development of a burden for people apart from being present with them and walking amongst them and seeing those needs. So, Absolutely. And what had been only theoretical before became real to a significant portion of that generation. So 300, 300 new missionaries and support for missionaries grew by 500% in those five years. Undoubtedly, the most significant period of growth within the 102-year history of Baptist missions. So with that kind of growth, 
there needed to be more careful attention given to the administration. In 1960, Dr. Alan Lewis was called to be the first full-time president. Up until that time, it had been an unpaid position filled by men who pastored, but also served on the council, and typically the chairman of the council was considered president of the mission. In 1960, Alan Lewis, who had been chairman of the council and served without pay as president, he was called by God away from his pastor at Euclid Nottingham Baptist Church right here in Cleveland to become the first full-time president. He served in that capacity for 23 years. I had the privilege of knowing him. He was a he was a big man with a huge heart. He was from a family that was Canadian. He was actually born in Angola, presumably the first white baby born in Angola, born to missionary parents out of Canada, became the first full-time president. But I, I think of him to this day as a gentle giant. He used to come in after I became the president. He, of course, continued to live here in the area and he would come into the office. He was always so careful not to occupy a large portion of my time. He, he wouldn't give me nearly as much time as I craved. <laughs> I could have easily spent the entire day sitting, visiting with him. He would usually give me about 15 minutes, and then he would summarily stand and announce that he wasn't going to take up any more of my time. And he would make his rounds through the office and visit with people with whom he had served for yeah. all those years. Wonderful, wonderful guy. We actually, And then I served for the first two years in the administration, as executive vice president serving under Dr. Raymond Buck, who I continue to say had a, a resume that was suited for the presidency like no one else that's ever served. He had two advanced theological degrees. He had an earned doctorate in education. He had pastored, very fruitful pastorate in Kansas. He'd served for 10 years in Central Africa in theological education. He'd served as a representative of the mission, traveled and recruited for the mission. Then he served as administrator for Africa and Europe and vice president under Dr. Lewis. It was under his presidency that I came in as executive vice president. He remained chief executive officer. I became the chief operating officer. And after just over two years, uh, he retired and I moved into the presidency. But having known these men, I think in terms of, of William Haas as having set the tone for 102 years of ministry, he said early in his time, I don't want any, he was on the field and expecting others to promote the mission. He said, I don't want anything promoted on the strength of its identity with me. Take my name off of everything associated with the mission. This must be known as God's work. So from the very first day, the mission has been better known for the work of its missionaries than for the, the personality or, or the charisma of its leaders. Yeah. And consequently, uh, every one of them has been an inspiration to me. What a what a privilege has been my. I, th- I think of my years of service with Baptist Men Missions as such a rare privilege, such a such an extreme expression of God's grace in my life. Not only to have been associated with those men that I've I've just named and many others like them. I've I had the privilege of knowing just a couple. From those original, Haas prayed for 100 missionaries for Africa. He only ever saw 17. He only lived four years after starting the mission. He saw 17 step out. He only saw 12 arrive on the continent during his lifetime. But I had the privilege of getting to know at least a couple of those those earliest among the, the 17 that were recruited by Haas. I knew virtually all of the next generation forward 
had the privilege of being associated with the mission for more than a third of its more than a century of, of service. It's been such a profound privilege for me. It's uh, inexpressible. Well, for the last seven years, my association with Baptist Missions as a council member and now as an administrator, I can I can say from that perspective, what I saw all the years of my childhood growing up from you was a endearing respect for what these guys had accomplished, particularly William Oz had accomplished. And uh, there are there are certainly those who would share a similar testimony of your influence in the office of the presidency. And I, I, I don't have a visit with any of our mission family, any constituency pastor as I'm on the road. Uh, rarely do I not have the opportunity to hear from one of them about your influence in their life and what you've accomplished for the cause of Christ through the ministry that God put you in, in the presidency. Well, here's where we came into this discussion. I suspect we're about ready to exit the discussion. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And Haas was careful to turn the glory to God. He didn't even want his name published with promotion of the mission. And I can say from my association with, I'm, I'm the only surviving former president of the mission. I can tell you that from my association with the many who have served, including the two men, Vernon Rosenau and Patrick Odell, who have served in this capacity beyond my time, I can tell you that each one of us would be very quick to say what's happened here has been by the blessing of God. And we would never want to be guilty of failing to do what the psalmist told us to do when he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Well, we appreciate you being here today, Dad. If you've enjoyed listening, appreciate what you've heard here, been encouraged, inspired, or equipped, make sure to leave us a five-star rating in whatever streaming service you're using today. And you can reach us with questions or comments at send938 at bmm.org. 